Hello, and welcome to The Church's Radical Reform, the series that looks at the unprecedented battle to renew the Catholic Church, which Pope Francis has begun. My name is Christopher Lamb, and in this episode, I'm going deeper into the Church's Synod process and talking to three people about how the Synod can help navigate the political polarisation which is all around us and which affects the Church. How can the Synod process heal divisions rather than exacerbate them? I'm also going to be speaking to one person who does not believe the Synod process is the way for the Church to go at all. My first guest is David McCallum, a Jesuit based in Rome who runs a special training programme for church leaders. He's also one of the Synod advisors and was involved in drafting an important Synod document recently. David McCallum, thank you for joining me uh, to discuss the latest in the Synod process. One of the fields of expertise that you have is, is navigating the disagreements and the tensions that the Synod process has thrown up within the church generally. What are your top tips for Catholics and others who are navigating these tensions? Mm. I would say, first of all, it's important to take a step back and distinguish between the symptoms and the root causes. If we're talking about the right of polarization and the way in which this experience of the way that politics have, in a sense, overtaken the way in which we see almost all of our social reality now, this is actually a symptom, not the root cause, right? And if we're going to talk about how synodality is in many ways Pope Francis's response to polarization, I think it's important to dig below those symptoms which we experience and to understand what's actually causing it. Um, I really see polarization as a maladaptive response to systemic challenges that we face. And those systemic challenges include things that you know well. So for the last, you know, 30, 40 years, globally, we've been experiencing what we call globalization. And one of the, the sort of experiences of that globalization is a very rapid, almost too fast, um, experience of the incredible social diversity of the world, often right in our own communities. This is a good thing, right, from many perspectives, but for many people who um, find that their identity is based in a very stable way, in a specific place, according to certain mores and a certain history, to all of a sudden try to cope with a massive, in a sense, and disorienting experience of diversity um, is going to create fear. In addition to globalization and this incredible and rapid social diversification um, is the way that, uh, unfortunately, power politics have taken the interests of particular groups, often identity groups, and exaggerated them and made them so extreme that if you are holding a middle position politically between right and left, you no longer have a space. Uh, there's no voice. And in fact, if you try to raise your voice, you're seen as, you know, in a sense, weak or um, soft in your values. Um, this wedge that's been pushed by uh, very well-resourced, uh, 
elite uh, factions on both the right and the left, not just in the United States, but in other countries around the world, um, has created this, this very interesting dynamic where social media then capitalizes on this extremity of views and creates echo chambers that in fact you essentially subscribe to so that all you hear is that which is going to reinforce your existing assumptions. This is a very toxic situation for any um, social political reality that wants to be democratic, um, where reason and dialogue and debate are actually uh, seen as kind of part and parcel of how decision-making and, and authority are used. And what it's doing is, as you know, it's concentrating power further and further in the hands of fewer and fewer people. Um, it creates an environment where people are feeling anxiety, right? The, the economy, gaps between the rich and poor, um, recently, you know, the COVID pandemic, fears of scarcity brought on by what we're now experiencing here in Europe as a fuel crisis. Uh, many people are experiencing very, very intense inflation. So these factors instigating an experience of anxiety, which people might even find hard to name, it's just there all the time. Um, the impact of anxiety essentially is to create a certain amount of regression mm -hmm. at the individual and even the, the collective and social level. Um, this regression takes a couple of forms. One, in the face of such complexity and overwhelm, we look for simple solutions. We look for narratives that break down our enemy um, in very simple terms so that we can coordinate ourselves and not feel uh, in any way um, that our reality is more complex than we can manage. By facing off against a common enemy, we create a certain amount of uh, safety, our perceived sense of safety. But this black and white thinking, this dualistic thinking, also makes us prone to authority figures who want to manipulate our desire for simple solutions and easy narratives and essentially use that for their own power. We see the rise of populism, nationalism, authoritarianism, um, these kind of movements which are happening all around the world. Um, they're actually capitalizing on this ambient fear. It's not to say that there aren't so many amazing things happening um, because of technological advances, because of incredible advances in health, uh, reduction of poverty, increase of access in some other parts of the world. But those um, very beneficial advances are often not seen when we're overcome by anxiety. All we can do is look at what's going wrong. Okay, I've given a long preamble here. But if we don't understand these um, basic features underneath polarization, it's very difficult to, um, to see just how prophetic Pope Francis is in calling for synodality at this point. Um, because the church is working within this context that you have outlined and, and the church is not immune to these polarizations. No, no it's not immune. And in fact, um, despite the fact that as people of the gospel, our own narratives around the way that authority and power are to be used should be entirely different 
from the way that we see it used and abused around the world today. Jesus was so clear in his example, most dramatically um, on the cross, but immediately before the cross and the washing of the feet and telling his disciples, you must not exercise dominion and lordship over others in the same way that these worldly people do. That the way you exercise authority must be as a servant. We should know better, right? And if we don't see that synodality is in very um, dramatic ways, helping us to return faithfully to this witness and example of Jesus in the Gospels, we're missing something really amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course, there is this um, power dynamic and that you, that you mentioned, but within the church, there are very real disagreements um, over questions such as the role of women in the church, married priests, sexuality, all those contested topics how should those then be navigated? Is it a question of just letting people have their say and living with the, the disagreement? How should they be dealt with? Because they are becoming potentially quite divisive. One of the things that I think is emerging in Pope Francis's way of leading is presenting the synodal space as a space for discernment and dialogue. So. Um, first of all, he invites people to an encounter. We come into a, an open space where there's a space for us to interact with one another. In that interaction, we encounter the other, but we do so with the sense that um, our dignity and the dignity and well-being of the other are interdependent. And we want to be of service to the other because we know that in some ways it is for our own good and for the good of the whole. So those social spaces, the synodal spaces where I think Pope Francis is trying to um, create certain ground rules of encounter, this creates the conditions for a different kind of conversation. Um, then the emphasis on listening. No matter how good we are, or we think we are at listening, we're not as good as we think. <laughs> um, and so Francis is really emphasizing how we make a space within ourselves for the experience, the reasoning, the logic of the other, um, so that we can actually engage them as they represent themselves and as they are, rather than based on the assumptions and the kind of projections that we have. Or that you've seen on social media. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's leading to further fragmentation. But so his antidote, spaces of encounter, spaces where we're listening, listening with an open mind, to new facts, to reason, listening with open heart and empathy to the lived experience of others so that we could surrender the kind of position taking and trust that as we discern together that the Holy Spirit is actually working in and through the process. Um, so can these disagreements when they take place within the synodal context actually be healthy rather than being debilitating and divisive outside of that? synodal space, they could actually be creative? It's a great question. So it depends on our lens, right? If we see conflict as something that's only bad, something that in previous experience has, you know, ex in our own experience led to destruction or fraying of relationships, conflict is going to be something that people avoid 
or try to, to manage and control. But if we in the church see that healthy debate, dialogue around differences, and even the engagement of what we would think of as polarities rather than polar differences, um, we can actually see these conversations and these engagements as generative rather than destructive. There has to be a willingness to see oneself in relationship to others and to see that that relationship is something that people want to preserve over the long term, that there's a common good that we all are interdependently dependent upon, and that if we don't seek that common good, um, we're going to end up as winners and losers. This notion that Francis is moving us beyond a competitive notion of conflict, but to one where we think in terms of win-win solutions, mm-hmm. um, we might you know, consider very difficult questions. For instance, these questions about uh, women's ordination or the questions around abortion, which is so, you know, currently the topic in the United States, but is obviously a concern for Catholics all around the world. Uh, We might think about the questions around married clergy or the ordination um, of, of married men. So how do we think about these questions? The ideological point of view basically makes a part into the whole. It, what, what Francis is trying to help us do through the cynical conversation is to realize the partiality of our own perspectives, to come into the conversation with a certain amount of humility about what we know, um, to have humility before the true human dignity and subject of the other, which we know polarization and ideology are constantly, in a sense, destroying. They're instrumentalizing the human person for economic and political agendas. The the synodal parameters are important. Essential. Because when you don't have them, that's when the the thing can break down. So within that space of discernment, that's where the free disagreement can take place. Again, the framing that the disagreement or the conflict can be generative. Let's use an example, structure and flexibility. This is very much at the heart of synodality, right? or authority and participation. These things um, seen as values, so for instance, of authority in the way that it's currently understood within the church, hierarchy, usually flowing unilaterally in one direction from top to bottom. Um, If that is taken to extremes, it has all kinds of consequences that nobody in the church wants. It creates dependency on those who Uh, essentially want the church to make all its decisions for them, uh, all their decisions for them, or disenfranchisement, because there's no space for participation. So authority taken to extreme leads to unhelpful results. Um, Authority not held sufficiently means that uh, basically there is no reference point for how to uh, get things done. There's no understanding of how to um, deploy resources, make decisions, etc. Participation on the other end of the spectrum might be seen as a kind of horizontal engagement of people in processes of decision uh, making and decision taking. If this is taken too far, um, and you've seen this in, in other churches, there's a circularity that leads nowhere, right? But in the proper proportion, uh, the exercise of participation allows people to become 
protagonists, as Pope Francis would say, or stakeholders. When involved in processes of um, consultation, they have greater sense of accountability for the mission, um, for the objectives, for the outcomes. What do you do, though, uh, about people who don't want to come to the table, mm. who are just opposed to the very concept? Should the church seek to try and bring them along, or does there have to come a moment where you say, well, I've, we've done what we can, the door is open, but if you don't want to walk through, then <laughs> there's a limit. Jesus did have parables. The idea that the table is open and that there's more spaces and more chairs available um, is the responsibility of the church. Um, Jesus also has the image of, you know, the lost sheep. And so he's clearly willing to go after those who have strayed for whatever reason. Um, those who don't want to come to the table might not see themselves as stray sheep. They might see themselves as the, the true and only sheep and the yes. only ones worth being led back, you know, to their barn at the end of the night. However, the church is much bigger and broader than that. So those who willingly and willfully exclude themselves from the conversation have to really, I think, explore in their own conscience um, why they do what they do. And if it is from a place of fear uh, or a place of false conviction, a place of kind of superiority, uh, I think that a spiritual director would say, well, are these the motives or the sort of impulses that we want to really inspire and, and to encourage us? By contrast, people are not at the table because they've been forced to the peripheries when they're marginalized, when they've been given no voice, when they've been excluded because the church has a huge responsibility to make spaces at the table, to create access, to lift up their voices and experience. And clearly the synod process is trying to do that and has a long way to go before it, it's, you know, I think sufficiently um, accomplishes it. But. Sure. You've been involved with the drafting of the document for the next phase of the Synod, which uh, has tried to synthesize all the different um, contributions from local churches. It's been a big task. Um, is it possible do you think, for the church to hold these different voices together? I'm thinking about something like the role of women. Say someone in the US or Northern Europe, you know, women's ordination is something that many people are calling for, but somewhere in Africa, like Africa, it might be different. Can you talk, talk us through the kind of things you've had to navigate in this document drafting? Hmm. I would say, um, again, this is a really important question about... Uh, how to enhance harmony amidst diversity. And again, where, you know, the political ideological approach in a polarized context would say there's one truth and you've got to conform to it. Pope Francis is setting a very different example in synodality, that there is a harmony that can emerge from radical diversity. And it is by collecting that diversity with parameters and coherence in a way that um, helps to maintain a sense of the whole, even if that feels decentralized or is decentralized politically. Clearly over the last uh, eight or nine years, the church has been going through a decentralization process, 
helping in many ways um, the authority of the church to be uh, distributed and really uh, invested even further in the hands of bishops. At times, Pope Francis has also exercised plenty of unilateral authority, and it's often in the service, <laughs> right, of that decentralization. So these are paradoxes. But um, when we think about women's ordination, in rights-based cultures, this question of women's ordination and access to roles of decision-making and authority is understood through a different lens than it is in cultures where there's no rights-based way of thinking. Places where the Western Enlightenment has not been a dominant intellectual or social feature. And there are many, many places in the world where the notion of women's rights is still a distant point on the horizon for women. Um, cultures where there's more patriarchy, chauvinism, um, traditional values in many ways for those cultures, but understood through the lenses of the West, this is clearly something that has to be changed. When we as an international global church see the spectrum of the way that these issues map, then the push for women's ordination in some parts of the world could cause strain and even real social challenges for those who consider themselves Catholic and part of um, a culture where, for instance, those rights are, are, uh, are not even a thought yet. This is very complicated, how to manage this. Um, and so these become really important questions, I think, for the church to gather around yeah. and, and explore. But you can actually potentially create a deeper unity if you allow for this diversity rather than imposing a kind of uniformity. Sure, sure. Yeah. The, the imposed uniformity demands that people conform to an external code of conduct, an external um, set of um, beliefs or styles of being church. I spent many years in studies in New York City. New York City is an incredibly diverse part of the world and it's a rich and interesting experiment in social diversity in so many ways as London is and many other you know very very diverse cities around the world and you can ask people of many many uh, backgrounds who they are and they'll say well I'm a New Yorker right <laughs> there's something deep uh, there's something very um, passionate about that sense of identity now when we talk about the Catholic identity um, can people in their diversity say the same? I am Catholic. And let's remember that small c Catholic rem remains, you know, defined as universal. I am part of this people of God. And this beautiful theological concept is pointing to a reality. Um, when people in their beautiful diversity, um, discover a kind of core purpose and meaning in the gospel and see their primary identity as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. This is beyond a national identity. I believe that Pope Francis in this call to synodality is inviting the church and really through the church, our wider human race to discover this deeper uh, identity, um, created in the image and likeness of God, brothers and sisters of one another. 
that our baptismal dignity within the church is actually a sign and witness in the world beyond the church of, of the dignity of our humanity. And this is something that should be a source of pride and passion and a reason for our evangelical mission yes. in the world. Yeah, a, a kind of ray of hope in a, in a world that is increasingly uncertain and conflict-ridden. Um, finally, you've said uh, to me uh, that the Synod is a kind of lifeline, you think, for the church. Why do you think that? Within the Synod uh, listening uh, sessions that were heard in dioceses around the world, people for whom the church has become a difficult place um, because of the sexual abuse crisis or because of experiences of abuses of power um, have experienced the, the synodal listening space as a lifeline back to the church, literally, right? In a figurative sense, um, um, by opening up the channels for people to express their aspirations, their love for their church, their, their passion and desire to actually know more about their faith, to participate in meaningful ways um, in their own local church, to understand the implications of their beliefs for the way that they live their lives in society. I mean, all of these things which came through in the listening process, um, when they are heard, the church can hear back finally after speaking, you know, for centuries in a unilateral way to hear back. We've had this amazing introduction to so many spiritualities and devotions and really meaningful ways of connecting to God. Well, through this listening process, Francis has created a space, a channel for the people of God to bring forth back to the church its experience with its woundedness and, and its desire, its hope, um, in a way that the church has a responsibility to listen to, just as a, as a shepherd would tend to the sheep. This um, feedback loop is one of many, right? It's intended to, in fact, um, continue well past the events, right, of the synod. Um, it's intended to be a constant source of not just information, but a flow of life, right? And not just in one direction. It's meant to be a reciprocal channel of listening and engagement um, where the people of God can have, I think, uh, greater access to the experience of the Holy Spirit and the church as well. Well, David, thank you very much for your time. Not everyone is convinced about the Synod process, however. Some fear it could lead to further divisions in the church and weaken its mission. One of the prominent critics of the Synod is Dr. Gavin Ashenden, an academic author and journalist who for many years served as a priest in the Church of England, including as a chaplain to the late Queen. Given that the Synod is all about listening to different views, including those who are very critical of what is going on in the Synod, I felt it was right to talk to Dr. Ashenden to hear what he had to say. Dr. Ashenden, thank you for joining me. Hello, Krista. Nice to be with you. This podcast series is looking at the reforms that Pope Francis is seeking to bring about in the church through the synodal process, which I'm sure you are aware of. Now, you've had some experience of synods in the Church of England. What is your advice to the Catholic Church during this process? 
I suppose I should really start off by saying that whenever you're asked to give advice, never give it because no one will take it. And, but since you're kind enough to give me advice, uh, ask me for advice, um, I think my, let me offer observations. Um, clearly, this, a synodal process is, is a gift to the church. We should be talking to each other across the different organisms of the church. That's That must be a given. Uh, and it's also part of our understanding of Christianity that we, you know, an incarnational church is going to recognize that inverted hierarchy is, is a virtuous thing. So we're going to look for the top of the hierarchy to do what it's supposed to do and the bottom of the hierarchy to, to, to bring uh, the, the virtues of that the, the inverted hierarchy presents, love, uh, grace, humility, and so on. So once you suddenly look to the whole church, in this conversation. The difficulty is that the church always straddles uh, a balance between being a spiritual organism and a political organism. And those who take responsibility for running the church need to give some thought to how this balance is to be kept. The problem with the synodal process in the Church of England was that it began to model parliamentary dynamics. And so thinking itself, I think, rather clever, well, we will simply be uh, we'll mimic the parliamentarians in terms of the way we have parties and chairman and process and debates and agendas. And so it shouldn't really be a surprise that what you ended up with was a process that was politically very top-heavy indeed and spiritually really rather lightweight. And one reason I think that's beyond contradiction is that every so often someone would stand up in the synod in a debate and say something profoundly spiritual, really astute and wise, and everyone's jaws would drop and there'd be a moment of silence. And I think we would suddenly realize, my goodness, that was what we were here for. But 99% of our time has been sent, spent uh, in political, a politicized debate uh, in the open air and a great deal of politicking in the background as we've tried to um, make our, our opponents' lives more difficult and win different debates. So I, that's quite a long way of saying that the synodal process needs to be undertaken with as much attention to spiritual and metaphysical authenticity as to political process. And even though Pope Francis has said that the synod is not a democracy or not a democratic process, are you still concerned that that, that kind of political lobbying and uh, political uh, approach to the synod will start to, to take root? Well, I'm glad he said it, and he's quite right to say it, <clears throat> but I think you'll recognise that we're already seeing it happening. In the news reports that we read, we see that people are lobbying very hard and doing what they can over a world stage to strengthen the particular virtues as they see them of, of their own theological approach. By embarking on the synodal process, uh, a, a politicised struggle has already begun, and essentially, of course, it's a political struggle between progressives and conservatives. I mean, it, you might say, well, twas ever thus. But what we've done is we've given an arena and, and legs and fuel to the process. So one of the things that the church ought to be asking itself is, how do we contain the politicization that we've released? And can that be contained by focusing on the spirituality of the synodal process, the idea that you have to listen to each other, discern the Holy Spirit, talk to people who you disagree with. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, which is what the early church uh, stood by. Or has it been done in a way to produce a certain end result? One of the difficulties we have already is that, if you like, from the progressive side of the 
worldview that we're dealing with, there is a sense that we very much want an end result to come out of this. We think it will. We have confidence it will. In fact, we think the synodal process is just the means to produce the end result we want. Well, this makes it quite difficult for those who don't share the progressive point of view to enter into the synodal process with confidence, um, because there's a sense it's been, they would say, rigged uh, or, or mis-malformed to a certain end. So how could this issue of motivation be addressed? Well, it could be addressed if at every stage of the process, it was absolutely clear between the two viewpoints that the process was intended to find a deeper wisdom uh, rather than to, to bring an end result. And, and a deeper wisdom is very much what we need because we're at a point in history where we're experiencing uh, not only a cultural crisis, but a, a, a crisis of civilization. One of the reasons I became a Catholic, one of the things the Catholic Church ought to be able to bring to this more global sense of cultural and civilization crisis is a degree of wisdom and stability. So in a sense, we, we are both listening to the spirit of the age, but we must be interrogating it as well. And I think my difficulty with this nodal process at the moment is I, I, I don't see a great deal of will or preparation to interrogate the spirit of the age as well as to listen to it. Is there also a part of you that's thinking, well, I, I left the Church of England and it's <laughs> and now I've joined another <laughs> Catholic church and we're... <laughs> off on a synod process uh, once again. Yes, of course, it's no surprise to me. It was never a surprise to me that I would be going out of the firing pan into the fire. But both the Church of England and the Catholic Church are engaged in, in a, a very serious, uh, problematic journey uh, at this, this moment in time when so many things are in flux and in particular, when the Christian narrative, the Christian worldview, Christian values are once again, because they were very potently challenged in the 20th century um, from both the right and the left, but once again, in a way that is not simply right or left, the Christian inheritance is being challenged. So, um, of course, it's no surprise to me at all that the Catholic Church is uh, engaged in a very profound struggle indeed. I saw the Church of England engage in that struggle, and, and in my judgment, it lost it. Um, uh, the arguments I would make, and I do make to my fellow Anglicans, is you, you simply failed to interrogate the spirit of the age and modify it and amend it. There was a very serious failure of prophecy, uh, a highly successful resolution politically, but an equally serious failure in prophecy for the Anglican Church. And I think to the extent that it may, it may suffer demise, because of it. Uh, so the same process is happening in the Catholic Church. Synodality is the forum in which it's taking place. Uh, in my judgment, there needs to be a very careful balance between the prophetic and the political, not only for us to survive and to flourish as a church, but also so that we can bring something redemptive to a highly confused and conflicted society that we live in. Is there a danger, too, with the synod process that the Catholic Church adopts a slightly different model of the church ecclesiologically, that there's a danger that it can lose its Catholic ecclesiology in terms of uh, its structure and how it has understood itself. Is, is that also a concern to you? I think it might be. I mean, at one level, we're also, this is also a moment of great excitement and great opportunity. I'm very much with Pope Francis when he articulates reserves about clericalism and authoritarianism 
uh, and a, de a degree of sort of bad transcendence. Uh, by, by bad transcendence, I, I'd say um, a sort of a, an autocratic distancing. If I can put this in a kind of slightly wider framework for a moment, it seems to me that one of the things we're dealing with is the, the virtuous interplay between transcendence and imminence. But both transcendence and eminence can have virtuous, authentic and inauthentic, uh, functional, dysfunctional, um, virtue and vice, perhaps. You can have good transcendence and bad transcendence in the same way that you can have uh, good eminence and bad eminence. So, you know, good eminence is the eminence that we see in the incarnation and the entrance of the Holy Spirit uh, piercing our depth. Bad eminence is, is, the, is the chumminess where we take a form of control and we feed off a fake intimacy. Good transcendence is, is authority and majesty and awe uh, and, and the beyond. Uh, and bad transcendence is autocratic and authoritarian and distant and alienation. So it's not enough simply to say we want a mixture between transcendence and imminence. We have to find a way of, of a, an interplay between the most virtuous aspects of that. But if, we, if that brings us back to the Snowdle process, which is what I was trying to do, um, and to answer your question, uh, there is an opportunity to reconfigure uh, the ecclesiology of the Catholic Church in a way that's more virtuous, because churches always have to be reformed or they stagnate. It's like riding a bicycle. Um, but but one needs to get the right kind of reform. Uh, and so, yes, there should be a development of our understanding uh, of the relationship between clergy and laity, but it needs to be a virtuous one. My fear at the moment from the synodal process is that the, the virtue I'm looking for, I don't see being articulated uh, or, or exemplified. In other words, I can't see the prophetic vision that I think needs to lie behind this in order to counter the politicization, the dysfunctional forms of imminence, the very danger of democracy that the Pope warned us against. And do you see that danger most in something like the German Synod, which is pushing for ordination of women deacons and other, uh, we could say, reform uh, initiatives that we've seen uh, implemented in, in the Church of England and, and other um, non-Catholic uh, Christian churches? do not as a matter of doctrinaire um disapprobation uh, it, it's because i was born in the mid 50s and i've lived to the second half of the 20th century and i've had the privilege of seeing feminism outwork itself so i would say that in the 1960s 1970s when i first encountered feminism it seemed to me to be a very good thing indeed who can be against equality who can be against equality of opportunity uh and um and, and fairness and justice the problem is that what we've dealt with in the late latter part of the 20th century uh, was, I suppose, um, how, how would one describe it? Uh, it's like pulling in a fishing line and discovering that the fish that you've caught at the top of the line are good to eat and very helpful. But from the depths, you're dragging in something else that's much more dangerous and antipathetic. And so what feminism gave birth to, with first and second wave and then third wave feminism, and the third wave feminism gave birth to uh, was was highly engaged in postmodernism and relativism. What looked like single movements that we could learn from have, in fact, been a seamless process containing values that are highly antipathetic to everything that Christianity stands for. So, by nibbling away at feminism and digesting it, what you do is you introduce into the church a whole philosophical system, the latter ends of which are profoundly antithetic to what we're talking about. I mean, particularly, they're antithetic to revelation or authority. And one simple example might be that feminism has made it very difficult for young women to fall in love with their heavenly father. 
because they've been so introduced to, to toxic masculinity and to the patriarchy that it makes almost anything masculine indigestible and quite threatening. Well, if you're not going to locate Jesus in his time and space culturally and say you know, he was limited by that, that, that becomes a, a metaphysical and an ontological problem. Um, and if in our society we find ourselves with a certain kind of secular spirituality that makes access to the Father impossible, that's a theological problem. It's not just a cultural and a political problem. Well, and so I think that, that the feminism has introduced us to some, some, some theological problems that we have to resist. In other words, we have to take the good things out of feminism and resist the bad things. But, but back to your observation and to finish the sentence, um, it seems to me that the, 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 the German synodal, uh, the expression of the German synodal process is an uncritical swallowing of cultural values of the late 20th century that people ought to have seen through and moved beyond rather than trying to replicate as if somehow they have something to teach the church about sexuality uh, and authenticity. So really, uh, a lot of your concern is, is the church or those involved in some synodal processes not being critical enough, not interrogating enough the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age that we're, that we're living in. And because it's such a turbulent moment in history, you feel the church would be, do better to pause and to and to stand still whereas with pope francis it's more let's move forward let's keep going at a, at a terrifically fast rate is that also a concern for you I'm, i don't want to criticize pope francis but i can certainly see from a catholic point of view one hasn't developed a, an in-depth interrogation of the zeitgeist and and particularly what we've seen developing in modernity and secularism um uh, I mean, you could add cultural Marxism or wokeism, uh, postmodernity, whichever. It's, it's all complementary package. Then there's a feeling that perhaps what this movement of progressive secularity does is to offer a refreshment to some of the ways in which the church has bo got bogged down in the bad sides of clericalism and authoritarianism, unhealthy preoccupation with masculinity. But if you look at what the Church of England has done, so that when they, they ordained women as priests and said, well, this is excellent, we're getting the feminine now. And I mean, one of the things one's discovered in, in Anglicanism is that, that, that women, senior women priests, bully other people quite as much as men ever did. In fact, the difference between men and women, if I may be sort of so... Uh, uh, um, uh, a, 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 bit, a bit lame for a moment is to say that, that, that men bully people less in a less sophisticated way than women do, um, which we've educationalists have, have long understood. So in other words, it's not that women are more virtuous than men, which is the way it was presented to us for the 70s, 80s and 90s. And then what we discovered is that feminism brings with itself a commitment to relativity, as you might expect it would, it would need to. And relativism feeds into postmodernity, where there is no authority and no absolute. And the idea of revelation becomes a real problem. And so by beginning with feminism and equality, you end up by finding that you have, you have a real problem with epistemology. We should step back from what we've seen in the last 60 years in terms of the intellectual and cultural development of the West and interrogate it. It's not led to some very good places. Cases. Our children are suffering from levels of mental distress that are off the scale. The confusion about sexuality seems, or most people agree, seems to be causing much more harm than therapeutic uh, help. Turbulence, the anger between men and women is, is problematic, and the way in which we've done sex and uh, abortion are, are catastrophic. 
Um, again, another reason for becoming a Catholic is that the Catholic Church has contained and offers a profound worked out wisdom. Of course, it hasn't always got things right. Of course, it's full of people who made mistakes. Of course, it's full of flawed people. But nonetheless, one of the reasons I became a Catholic was I didn't see in any other political or spiritual or metaphysical system the degree of depth and wisdom that the Catholic Church has got. And so it's difficult to see it being thrown over and being seduced by the frisson and the excitement of a volatile and highly superficial and I think ultimately very dangerous secular metaphysic. When you talk about um, the role of women, there are, we've seen through this synodal process, a, a clear call for women to be more involved in the leadership of the Catholic Church, uh, to be given visibility. Uh, surely you would accept that that is uh, a good instinct. That's not something that is simply uh, being tied up with the spirit of the age. No, you're absolutely right, but I think we have to define our terms. I mean, one of the periods of history I like very much is the 14th and the 15th century, and it's characterised by some of the most potent women you could ever meet in history. Um, and the women mystics who emerged in the Catholic Church uh, were a group that any feminist should be fundamentally proud of. But they made the distinction that we often fail to make today, and that is between power and potency. And so the problem with, femin with feminism is that it, it wants to develop a language and a practice of power. It wants to take some power away from men and at the very best find some kind of parity if you can manage parity. Power is always very difficult to find parity with. Look at, <laughs> look at the history of, of, of nationhood in the last 300 years in Europe. Um, but actually, the church should be saying it's not power that we're after, it's potency. We're after a certain vigor and authenticity that the Holy Spirit brings, who works within our sexuality, our, our class, uh, our intelligence, all the given things that we have, none of which are, present barriers to the Holy Spirit. Um, and what we want is women... Uh, I, I, I hate the word leadership and I hate the word power because I think, again, they're both theologically, they're problematic for the Christian tradition. Um, we prefer service to leadership and we prefer potency to power. Again, the moment you start bringing in uh, secular uh, categories in order to reformat Christian charisms, you end up with a profound contradiction. So I'm very much in favour of people finding their charisms and bringing to the church, whether they're men, women, children, adults, clever, uh, practical. It, we should not break this down to men against women okay. and, um, uh, and and the powerful against the, the those who lack power. But do, would you accept that a synodal process could be of benefit to the Catholic Church? It's not that you disagree with synodality fundamentally. It's, is it, it's how synodality is implemented. I'm very much in favour of a synodal process. The church has always had synods. But what you want to do is to look to your strengths. If you were to ask me to create a synodal process, the Catholic Church at the moment, uh, then what I would want to do is to, to introduce people who had gifts and experience uh, and who brought charisms to the table. At the moment, the fear is that people are being invited to come because they're there and to articulate their opinions that they have without any discernment or discrimination or distinction as to whether they're well-founded or, or, frankly, therapeutically improper. 
Um, there's no distinction made. We just, we've invited people to make their voices heard. Well, that's a recipe for chaos. Um, we have to stand against the culture and say discrimination is a very, very good thing indeed. After all, at the very heart of being a Christian is the discrimination between good and evil. And to make the point theologically, the whole of our salvific process depends upon discrimination. We have to be able to choose. It's, a, it's astonishing to me that in the synodal process as it now stands, discrimination has become a bad thing. We're not trying to discern between those who bring something good to the table and those who just bring their frustrations and their voices. So yes, absolutely to a synodal process, but I'm not sure this one's been thought out very well. So, so you've mentioned the the pitfalls of, of synodality, but the, the synodal process is being overseen by Pope Francis, uh, who is someone with experience of discernment as a Jesuit Pope. Now, you studied with the Jesuits at Heathrop College, uh, I believe. Are you concerned about uh, the, the, a Jesuit Pope being in charge of this? <laughs> well, it, it brings some very mixed emotions for me because uh, I, I very much enjoyed uh, doing postgraduate work with the Jesuits for, for two years in the middle 1980s. And indeed, again, it was one of the things that deepened my love and my appreciation of Catholicism. And I thought the Jesuits were doing so many of the things that as a proud Anglican, I, I wanted to do, but I thought they were doing it so much better. Uh, I loved the way the Jesuits celebrated mass. I loved their concern for justice. I loved their intellectual interrogation of everything. And I very much loved their competence. Um, and the interesting thing about when Pope Francis was elected, I was very excited. And as pontificate has developed, Many of the things that Pope Francis says are things that I would have echoed with joy, jubilance uh, in the 1980s. I would have been absolutely eye to eye with them. I wonder how much the Pope's theological trajectory has changed uh, uh, in that time. And the reason I've changed is because I spent nearly 25 years at a very progressive university teaching. And so, in, in a sense, it was a kind of melting pot to many of the ideas that were beginning to emerge in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Um, and it was precisely the trajectory those ideas took that moved me from being uh, as excited a potential liberal as, as anybody else who had hope and, and vision to being someone who was profoundly cautious um, uh, instead. Everything that I've seen developing out of the universities in the last 30 years makes me believe my caution is right. Uh, we've moved to a point where there is no longer freedom of speech in the universities, uh, where there is no agreement on epistemology in the universities, where, where cultural dogma has uh, has shifted uh, a whole series of other values in a highly destructive way. Uh, and I think what that means is that, that the values we held in the 1980s ought to be reprocessed through what actually happened. What I would hope is that, that the Pope would surround himself with people um, who not only shared his own background and his own theological and political predilections, but actually had gone further along the curve, because I think that's what, the, in, a, in a sense, prophecy, prophecy does two things. Uh, it certainly speaks the mind of Christ to a situation, but to some extent it sees what's coming. Uh, and I think I would like within what I see in the Vatican to have a greater confidence that the cultural take ideologically uh, and, and ethically is has seen what's coming. So 
a question of uh, being careful of what you wish for. Yes, really. And also not winning. I mean, I was a bit naive in the 1980s, but I mean, I was as naive as, as an excitable 35-year-old should be. But we need to change our views, all of us. I mean, my views are not set in stone. In fact, you know, well, one of the reasons I'm, I'm glad for an opportunity to talk on a podcast like this is I, I hope it'll develop a, 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 some debate and people will say, Gavin Ashton is a bit of an idiot. He hasn't seen this, that, and the other. And I should be able to look at that and think, goodness me, perhaps I am an idiot. Perhaps I haven't seen these things. I can change my position. Uh, and it seems to me that's you know that's what we all ought to be capable of doing, uh, allowing some form of evolution. I mean, that's you know, Jordan Peterson's been very good about that, saying that the real one of the real fears of the lack of freedom of speech. It's the opportunity to talk through what we think and what we believe with each other and to allow our views to be modified. It's the antidote to bigotry. Yeah. Uh, and it's one that we should drink deeply and often. And I hope it provokes some discussion because that's what Sindal... Yes, I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure it will. And, and um, I'm, I'm looking forward to it very much. Let's, let's just pray and let's hope that it's, um, uh, that, that it's productive and, and creative and, and uh, it takes us all further in the direction we... we we feel we should be going. Well, thank you. Whatever misgivings there might be about this synod process, about what's happening in Germany or other parts of the world, it's clear that the process of synodality, which Pope Francis has begun, is the only game in town at the moment. And it's a process that isn't going to stop. My final guest is Jerry O'Hanlon, He's a theologian who a number of years ago saw the importance of synodality. He has a deep understanding of how it all works. So, Jerry O'Hanlon, thanks for joining me uh, for this uh, discussion. Um, and I wanted to start by asking, uh, what do you do within the church? You're a Jesuit, uh, you're based in Ireland. Can you tell me a bit about what you've done throughout your ministry and how you're involved in the synod process? Yeah, good to be with you, Chris. Um, my background is that I was uh, a theologian working in the Milltown Institute in Dublin for many years. And during that time, uh, particularly in the 90s, when there were various uh, scandals in the Irish church, I began to get interested in ecclesiology, the theology of church. I was also provincial of the Jesuits for six years from 1998 to 2004. And during that period, the child sexual abuse issue was very prominent. And we Jesuits uh, were involved with that. And there was a huge challenge. I worked for a while in our Center for Faith and Justice. So when Pope Francis came in and, and kind of made that, if you like, uh, official policy uh, recently, uh, the bishops asked me, would I serve on their steering committee for the what we call this, the synodal pathway here in Ireland? Yeah, so to what extent is the synod uh, needed in Ireland um, when it comes to the, the crisis you mentioned when it comes to sex abuse? I would think it's very necessary. I mean, you could have just a, a discussion about sexual abuse, and uh, but because that whole issue goes a lot deeper and further and in a way is symptomatic of other issues in the church, the way Pope Francis has moved beyond even Vatican II, which talked about collegiality between the Pope and bishops and, uh, to a certain extent, priests, 
to synodality, which involves the voice of the laity in, in a much more prominent way, that's very fertile ground for a country like Ireland, which for too long has allowed its lay people, if you like, to have a very subordinate role and a very silent role in the church. The culture has been one of obedience and the church did its teaching through bishops and priests and the laity were simply expected to obey. And uh, it really didn't give any chance for very, very talented, intelligent, holy lay people to have a voice. And I think that's what's beginning to happen now. So how have the discussions gone so far in Ireland? I mean, there's, you, you talked about the National Irish Synod process. There's also yeah. the discussions that have happened as part of the Global Synod. What's been going on? It's It's been going well in the sense that the bishops seemingly meant it. There was a lot of scepticism and even cynicism among lay people that this idea that the Pope had of parousia, that people would speak openly, and people were looking to the bishops to see would what they said uh, be filtered in some way, would various gatekeepers, including this uh, synodal committee that I'm on, would they filter out what the people were, were saying? So I think there's been a, a good reception to the fact that there's been very little of that, if any, that the process has been very transparent, that the bishops haven't intervened to censor anything, and so although the numbers involved were small, and it's a very small percentage of the Catholic population who self-identify as Catholic who actually got involved, probably the demographics too are, favor the elderly uh, cohort rather than uh, younger people. Nonetheless, those who did get involved were impressed, I think, by the openness and respect and ability to disagree and and the faith that held it all together. So I would say that it's been very well received and signs of that, if you like, were that the national secular media, which normally in recent years has only been interested in church affairs when it's a question of scandal of one sort or another, took a real interest in this process and reported on it uh, very positively, uh, and it clearly was something of significance. How does the Synod navigate um, differing um, positions? On the one hand, Mary McAleese, former president of Ireland, she's um, sometimes been quite critical of the Synod process, but obviously yeah. sees a, a huge potential for major change. And on the other hand, you've got people resisting the Synod out of hand or dismissing it out of hand because of the uh, fear that it will make big changes. How, how does the Synod navigate those, those two things? Because I don't think either side is really um, representative, is it? No, and I think uh, how it's negotiated it so far, how it's, it's discovered that there's something deeper that binds both sides together. We had a meeting in Athlone last June of about 160 delegates from different parts of Ireland. And all those hot button issues like the ordination of women, like the treatment of the gay and lesbian community, like various other issues to do with sexuality and gender, they were all mentioned. Uh, 
But people were all the time saying, go deeper, go deeper. And so there was a recognition that uh, faith is at issue here, or, or what the Pope refers to as our encounter with Jesus Christ, that we've taken that somehow for granted. And in an, an age which has become more secular, you can't, we, we can't take that for granted anymore. There's a lot of common ground around renewing our faith and our ability to talk about our relationship with Jesus Christ, adult faith formation, renewed liturgy. There was sort of common con ground around the fact that, <laughs> uh, ironically, funerals are done very well liturgically in Ireland. And you but their ordinary masses, for example, very often are very thin and very, uh, people just say boring is, is what they say. Yeah. How do you manage expectations of those who are thinking that the Synod will change things very quickly on, say, the ordination of women to the diaconate, not the priesthood, but the diaconate? How do you manage that? Because there's some people thinking that it could suddenly lead to big big changes but that's not really where i think francis is is looking at things no at the moment uh, we have been reading uh, uh, in our liturgies between acts and galatians we've been reading what happened in the early church uh, at the council of jerusalem around the whole issue of uh, circumcision i was astounded yesterday i'd forgotten it in galatians Paul's so clear about the fact that circumcision is not necessary and not to be recommended. They started out that whole debate wondering, did everybody have to get circumcised? And within a decade, people were, were had moved on to say, no, it's, it's not necessary. And so I think managing expectations is an interesting phrase because I think that's the kind of phrase which I used as provincial, which bishops use uh, and which people rightly use in terms of organizations. How do you manage expectations when you're Jesus, the son of God, and you have the spirit and there's something explosive and exciting and dynamic there? So I've resisted in our own synodal committee too much focus put on managing expectations. Mm. It's no. very fertile ground at the moment for developments, but there's no doubt that those other issues in Europe and in other parts of the world, the hot button issues around sexuality and gender, at the moment, me are an obstacle to mission. So, so there's something I have to give there. And um, I know Pope Francis himself is quite conservative on these issues, but he's so radical in, in making this synodal process part of the program to the church. And once they speak out honestly and listen generously, then it doesn't seem to me that managing expectations is, is the <laughs> primary task, though I realise that one has to be careful. And we in our Irish thing, just to finish on that, we did advert to the fact that at the moment, at least, we've managed to get a broad church engaged in this process. And it is a delicate point of discernment as to when particular decisions are made which will please one group and will displease another and that's something that obviously requires deep discernment and we're still learning how to do that yes you obviously think though that these contested issues do have to be addressed because i also sense there's quite a lot of fear from people high up in the church about even 
discussing these things because they fear that the whole process will get out of of control. Absolutely, and um, I mean that's why I'm I'm impressed by what Pope Francis is doing. He's his first interview to the various Jesuit uh, journals. When he was asked to describe himself, he said, "Well, uh, you could say I'm astute." But then he went on to say, really, I'm a sinner and who's as self-aware as that and who knows what happens. Once you initiate an open debate, he must know that these issues will come up. And of course, he faced that already, not in Europe, but in the Amazon um, Synod. So, yes, it seems to me healthy that those issues are discussed. I recognize there's no easy resolution but again, when he talks about discernment, he talks about holding polarities in tension and waiting for the overflow that comes from the, the spirit. So who knows what will come out of this? But certainly in places like Ireland, to have any credibility as church, to be authentic, which is part of what the culture uh, welcomes at the moment, these issues have to be spoken about. And to be fair, the bishops have been very, I think, uh, generous, because I know a lot of them privately would have quite traditional and conservative views, but they have welcomed the debate and haven't sought to stifle it in any kind of way. I think that is a real challenge as to as we go forward. For too long, we've been quiet. I think that was one of the great learnings from the sexual abuse, that the, the silence which hung around that when people half knew or didn't know or said they didn't know, but there's no conversation around it. That's deeply unhealthy, it seems to me. Well, I mean, when you think that not so long ago, we were reading about reports of Irish priests and theologians being silenced for raising... Yeah contested questions this synod is is kind of uh kind of revolutionary if you think that you know just a few years ago if you raised some of these questions you would be facing disciplinary proceedings potentially from the vatican yeah absolutely and that's been a huge culture shift uh, there's an irish um sociologist she's works in america michelle dillon and she talks about what's necessary in a post-secular culture. And she thinks synodality is, is, addresses the post-secular culture because it allows the, the culture's preference for open speech. And she says in doing that, the cat is out of the bag. She means is once you begin to air things that are, it's like the emperor's clothes, once you say it, you begin to then ask, well, why do we hold on to these positions? And then you begin to invite the theologians in to try to examine what's underlying these positions. But if you ask theologians, are there other theologies which might point to a different direction? They would say immediately, of course, and they will give a multitude of, of examples. And particularly around the ordination of women, it's always curious to me that successive popes have said the church doesn't have the power to, to change matters and, and obviously relying there on scripture and tradition. I think to have those kinds of discussions, and there is the risk in the short term of schism or great division, 
And I think that's why this synodal process and the spiritual conversation and the discernment that Francis has tried to make central to the thing is so important. Because I think we really did find in Ireland that people who had radically different views were still able to touch into something that bound them together and that they they were respectful. And I heard people who disagreed radically with my own understanding and I expressed my own understanding and it was a safe place. And I left with enormous sense of hope for our church that people with such different views could still tap into something that bound them together and gave them uh, confidence to continue the debate. At the same time, we do also have this group that in the church and with the powerful megaphone of uh, certain Catholic media platforms that are really campaigning against the Synod. And I'm wondering what you think in terms of how possible it is to bring along people who have decided they just won't engage. And is that possible? How do you deal with that phenomenon? Because it is a real phenomenon. It's one I've seen you know, close up in Rome and, and, and elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've followed uh, the work you've done on that, the work Costin Ivory, the work other people have done, and I'm aware through different sources um, that there are powerful forces, very often well-financed and so on. I, I think the Pope himself is a very good model as to how to face into that. Um, like, if, if you recall, after the Synod on the Family, there were the cardinals who came forward with the dubia, the 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 doubts about the various teachings that were coming forward. Never give up on anybody. I would always invite people uh, into discussion. But so in the end, the spirit leads us into the fullness of truth. And it's like what uh, the this Pharisee uh, said to the council of the Sanhedrin in Acts, if this thing is from God, it will be shown to be from God. And, and so you, you, you let the debate continue, you do it with courage, you do it with the gentleness of dove, but with the cunning of a serpent. You're not naive about the fact that there are some forces out there which don't want to enter into the spirit um, of the synodal process. But there are many others, good people who have traditional views, and good people who have liberal views who are quite capable of being together and of finding something deeper that binds them together. Mm. And it seems to me you build on that uh, and you don't uh, succumb to any kind of bullying or any kind of manipulation uh, because we're living a world. I mean, it's not just in the church either and we can be uh, corrected and learn from, from, from others. Well, I think that's a brilliant response. And I, I think what you've said there sort of in itself is a sort of uh, uh, offers a framework of how to discern some of these <laughs> tensions. And it, it is obviously very, very difficult. Um, I'm also curious, though, for you, having witnessed the sexual abuse crisis in Ireland and devastation of that and of course that's not just Ireland it's a global phenomenon but really Ireland's been the kind of ground zero of of the crisis the synod 
offers some kind of hope, uh, do you think, um, for a church that it has faced real darkness or has been in darkness? Is that how you see it? I think if Ireland has got to come to terms with its past, it will have to go beyond the simple script of them and us, them being the wicked priests and us being the rest of the people, because there was a much more nuanced and layered complicity, if you like, in Irish society uh, around this kind of thing. It's the kind of thing which novelists uh, bring out very well. There's an Irish novelist, uh, Claire Keegan, and brought out a very short book, and it captures well how a local town would know that something was going on behind those big walls, but because they had vested interests in the institution, in the laundry, and in all the different activities that went on, for one reason or another, they kept quiet, and, and it required great courage to come forward. And I do think the synodal process, because it focuses on openness and it focuses on a safe space for talking, is a place where victim survivors can be heard and be heard in a funny kind of way that's healing not just for them, but for us, for the rest of us. That the wounds, we've called it in this in the synthesis document, it's an open wound. And it's a wound which is our wound. All of us in some way are wounded by what went on. And I do think I had my own experience of that. And it kind of illustrates well the different layers of the synod. I was asked after we'd gone through a process in the Jesuits recently of facilitated conversations. I was asked by one of the victims to meet him uh, unfacilitated. Uh, and I wasn't sure what that meant and what he wanted from me. And, and we met for about an hour. I prayed a lot beforehand because I was very conscious that this could be uh, a difficult meeting for me, but for him as well. And, you know, I had that experience just listening to him talk about his own experience and how he had been treated. I had the experience of the presence of God in our, in our, in our conversation, just that he was so loving in the way he held his truth and asserted it and challenged me to change myself. And I could feel my defensiveness going and I could feel how God loved me so much and loved him so much. And yet at the same time, how what we as Jesuits had done was grossly inadequate to address what he had suffered. So there was that kind of conversation. I'm not saying that that could be replicated with everyone and I was blessed and graced to have it, but it, it was made possible by that kind of openness, that synodality and that um, these kind of facilitated conversations it had. And it's just a moment of great grace and it, it brought me deeper into my own relationship with Jesus Christ. And I'm sure um, he was able to, to, to say the same because we've, corresponded since so synodality in action and i think as people of faith we have to be uh, brave enough to to profess our faith and say look that's the presence of god and and there's no other explanation for it 
and just give thanks for it and try to foster situations where that can happen more frequently. And I think synodality is one way of doing that. And I think the Pope is right in saying that in our time, it's the way for us to be church. Well, Jerry, thank you very much uh, for for sharing your, your insights with me. And uh, let's keep the conversation going. Yeah, good. Good to talk to you, Chris. Yeah, thank you. This is a podcast supported by the Centre for Catholic Studies at the University of Durham in partnership with The Tablet. Thank you for listening.